Hello everyone and welcome to episode 5 of the Road to Transhumanism show. I'm your host Elios Rej and this podcast's main objective is to inform the public about the technologies that will most probably impact the future of human evolution. Today I'm going solo where I review humans' natural defensive techniques so I can foresee the possible future of internal defensive mechanisms that will be needed to sustain the transhumanist revolution. I'll kick off by giving a simplified historical background, which I believe is interesting and much needed. Accordingly, we will forecast together in your imagination and through mine the possible future threats to the human race and the internal defensive mechanisms needed to keep us safe. I'll make sure to schedule specific episodes with experts in the field to discuss each technology alone, following the feedback on this episode, which I really hope you enjoy. But before delving into the topic, let me first define transhumanism again the way I see it for the people who are tuning in for the first time. For me, transhumanism, in a nutshell, is the use of technology to give humans the choice of transcending beyond their biological limitations. Through millions of years of evolution and natural selection, all living entities developed special defensive mechanisms essential for survival. Specifically, we humans acquired and created different techniques to fight both external and internal threats. A hundred thousand years ago, our ancestors used to be constantly in danger. Whether hunting for food or defending their habitats, death was always around the corner. Luckily, Homo sapiens inherited natural defense mechanisms to counterreact against these threats. We're all familiar with the term stress, I have no doubts. When attacked by a predator or faced with a natural disaster, the fight or flight response is activated. From a scientific perspective, the stress response is a work of art. It's a manifestation of fear, presumably of death. When a scary situation is detected by one of our sensory organs, a series of rapid actions is stimulated in our brains. This sequence is complex and occurs in different sections of the brain, consisting mainly of the limbic system. The limbic system is the part of the brain involved in processing emotions, memory and behaviors, among which is the fight or flight response. It all starts in the thalamus, which receives the signals of potential dangers. As the stress response is activated, a rapid chain reaction takes place. Let's go back in time. Suppose you are a hunter-gatherer, 18,000 years ago. By that time, agriculture had not yet been discovered. Your only source of nutrition was hunting wild animals and searching for fruits, competing with the wildest creatures out there. When hunting a gazelle, you most probably were sharing this prey with a hungry pride of lions. Let's say now that when you were about to throw your spear and kill the gazelle, you hear a noise and see a movement in the bushes next to you. Being alone, you immediately leave the prey and escape. That's called the low road. In this case, the thalamus sends an alert directly to the amygdala, another part of the limbic brain responsible for emotional processing. Now that you're far from the bushes, a simultaneous response is taking place. It's called the high road. This process is slower, 
since the message passes through the hippocampus and sensory cortex before reaching the amygdala, which explains why the process is slower. This route evaluates the severity of the situation and compares the signals to existing information stored as memory. If the source of noise and movement was indeed the pride of lions, your primal brain proceeds with the stress response until you became safe. Should it be just the wind blowing, the stress response gets deactivated. Preferably, you should really wish it's the latter case. Anyway, the main focus here is on the amygdala, which acts as the fight or flight switch. In reality, during a stressful incident, the amygdala contracts the hypothalamus, which acts as the control center, taking commands of the body when in danger, or when you think you are. During a stress response, your autonomic nervous system is stimulated, the part that controls involuntary actions such as heartbeat, respiration, blood pressure, hormone secretion, and what have you. This autonomic system consists of two components, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. The first is triggered under threat, activating the fight-or-flight response. A signal is sent to the adrenal glands, which in turn pump epinephrine or adrenaline and norepinephrine or noradrenaline into your bloodstream. Accordingly, your pulse and blood pressure soar. Your heart starts pumping blood rich in nutrients and oxygen to all of your vital organs. You start breathing faster to provide the excessive amount of oxygen needed and glucose and fats are released from temporary storage sites. Your blood vessels and airways expand, facilitating blood and airflow. All of your senses sharpen, notably visual and auditory ones. This chain of actions occurs so quickly that you cannot perceive it. After the decline of the first shot of adrenaline, the hypothalamus stimulates a network called HPA, hypothalamus, pituitary gland, and adrenaline gland. This network ensures the sympathetic system is kept activated. Therefore, if the pride of lions is still inside, the hypothalamus releases CRH, or corticotropin-releasing hormone, which launches the release of another hormone called adrenocorticotropic hormone, or ACTH for short, from the pituitary gland. ACTH, in turn, stimulates the adrenaline glands to release several hormones, namely cortisol. Cortisol plays an important role in the stress response. It works like an alarm. When the body is at high alert, cortisol can alter or shut down some functions that get in the way of your stress response, such as your digestive, reproductive, or immune system. As long as one line is still around, the body stays alerted. When you're safe again, cortisol levels drop. Thus, after evaluating the situation and ensuring that danger ceased, the amygdala orders hypothalamus to switch from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system. In this case, fight-or-flight response is deactivated, and the rest and digest response takes command, calming down your body and regulating autonomic functions back to normal. If you're interested to know more about stress, I've wrote an entire article about it, which you can find attached to this episode's description. So in essence, the stress response is your autonomic brain deciding on whether to fight or flee the hazard, providing you with all the necessary biological tools to do so.
but that's not all. Beside our physical strengths, we humans were able to craft tools and weapons to assist us when faced with any type of dangers. We set Earth's natural elements to our disposal, whether building shelters, manipulating fire, or even casting spells. Well, I'm not sure about the latter's efficacy, but our ancestors did. Now, suppose that while facing the pride of lions or the mighty storm, you got hit. Perhaps you weren't fast enough or prudent enough to escape, or you did face the threat and got injured as a result. In that case, the threat becomes internal. Thankfully, and just like lots of other living creatures, our species develop an internal defensive response specialized in healing the body. Any cut or burn can create an opening that damages our vital organs and allows bacteria, viruses, or even parasites to inflict serious damages to our cells, besides the harm caused to the tissues. At first, our skin tries to block invading organisms from entering deep inside the body. In addition, the mucous membranes also try to prevent these microorganisms from sneaking in. But let's say the virus, which is a deadly killer despite its microscopic scale, was able to escape the first line of defense. COVID-19 is one example, others include HIV or Ebola. Thankfully, our bodies do not surrender easily. We are equipped with a second line of defense called the inflammatory response. Inflammation is a result of the immune system, which includes the innate immune system and the adaptive one. The innate immune system, as the name suggests, is present since birth, whereas the adaptive immune system develops when exposed to an invading organism, in our case, a virus. In brief, the innate immune system is the rapid defensive response. It's non-specific, so it responds to all kinds of pathogens quickly. The reason behind the speed is because this response is activated regardless of, of whether your body was exposed to this type of pathogen before or not. On the other hand, the acquired immune system is an adaptive immunity, which operates more slowly and requires a prior contact with the pathogen to, to defeat it the next encounter. Only vertebrates possess the acquired immune system, which luckily we are part of them. So how does it work? In brief, there are mast cells, the security guards that wander in your body, actively searching for suspicious invaders. Once a foreign object is detected, they release special molecules, like histamine. Histamine enlarges blood vessels, allowing an army of white blood cells or mucocytes to combat these intruders. These cells are so brave, they interfere without knowing what they are actually dealing with. And just like an army, each leukocyte has a role. For instance, phagocytes chase invaders and literally eat them. A famous type of phagocytes is called macrophage. Another type is the dendrit dendritic cell, which not only eats the invaders, but also carries information about them to the spleen or lymph nodes, which needed to activate the adaptive immunity. In fact, each invader has a specific ID called antigens, which gets displayed on the macrophages surface, for instance, after eating the intruder, so other cells identify it easily. These antigens allow special cells to identify the pathogen 
and create antibodies against it. Antibodies are proteins that help the special forces, part of the adaptive immunity, in detecting and attacking intruders. Now, lymphocytes, special forces units, come into action. There are two types, T-cells and B-cells. Helper T-cells detect and bind to antigens displayed over antigen-presenting cells. These cells produce interleukin-1 to tell helper T-cells to, well, help. Helper T-cells, in turn, secrete interleukin-2. This chemical is used to inform all the lymphocytes about the presence of an intruder and makes helper T-cells create tons of copies of, copies of itself. Part of these T-cells become memory T-cells which are the officers who keep records of the pathogen for future intervention. Others form into cytotoxic T-cells that have a mission to kill pathogen-infected cells. Now going back to B-cells, I hope you didn't forget about them. These B-cells target invaders that haven't yet infected your cells. Each B-cell is covered with special antigens for a specific type of diseases. Once B-cells identify and bind to a pathogen, they start cloning themselves. Some B-cells secrete tons of antibodies that bind to pathogens and immobilize them, so that pathogens can kill them. The rest becomes memory cells, ensuring immunity against future attacks. And that's in short, is how your body protects itself from dying. Back to the present, we kept the internal defensive mechanism which was transferred from one generation to the other and proved an acceptable effectiveness for survival. We are now also assisting our bodies with vaccines, operations, and pharmaceutical drugs. Adding to that, we are more equipped than ever against natural disasters or battles, although the latter became far more lethal with time. Our tools are now far more sophisticated and really focused, while our weapons can destroy the entire solar system. But things are evolving more rapidly than ever. Exponential growth in all technological sectors is being achieved. The sky is not anymore the limit. Fast forward to the future, we have more control over our bodies. We are no more limited to organic material. Humans are now an amalgamation of organic and non-organic materials, a merger between all technological sectors, a modular work of art, which we have full control over. Darwinism is dead. It's the age of dictated evolution. Now we possess the most accurate tools to code and hack DNA with ease. Our bodies are navigated by nanobots, our brains connected to the digital cloud, our health monitored by biosensors, and our weak limbs and organs replaced with bionic ones. We are now finally transhumans. However, all these fascinating features create the need for far more advanced internal protection techniques. Let's try to visualize this in the rest of this episode. The progress in biotechnology can trigger harm far more dangerous than nuclear wars. Well, with CRISPR, for instance, in the wrong hands, evil scientists and terrorist organizations will be able to develop weapons of mass destruction. Creating a devastating pandemic would take a couple of experiments and, combined with artificial superintelligence algorithms, which became real in the future, dozens of devastating morphing coronaviruses 
with abilities beyond our imaginations can be generated within few iterations. Let's go further. Soldiers on the battleground are now able to drive their enemies paralyzed in a single gunshot, neutralizing their nervous systems. However, not only diseases can be developed with CRISPR, but also bioterrorists will find a way to hack your genetics by inducing tricky mutations to specific DNA stances. The outcomes are yours to think of. Therefore, a much more sophisticated immune system is required to immediately repair any faulty DNA mutation and eradicate any invading organism. In this case, perhaps biosensors and nanotechnology may be the savior. With such technology at hand, nanosensors and nanobots can assist our biological immune system either through rapid detection or effective interception. Yet, integrating digital technology in our bodies brings another risk with it. Having digital devices navigating our bloodstream expose our bodies to hackers. One possibility could be stealing private biomedical information and threatening people of sharing it to the public or on the dark web. Another possible goal for these black hats would be controlling our bodies by biohacking nanobots and biosensors, inflicting physical or mental damage, or even conducting spyware attacks, setting your geolocation privacy at risk. Hence, the future of human evolution needs an elite of biocybersecurity personnel able to defend against such dangerous attacks. But wait a minute, why target the peripherals while the central controller can be targeted? Well, in the future, our brains will be connected to the internet, and that's for sure. People will communicate virtually through tiny implants on their brains. They are able to read and write to the network directly through thinking. Memories can be uploaded and downloaded to and from the cloud at a glance, and information processing can be boosted with virtual processors. Implementing such technology to the human brain makes biocyber attacks inevitable and highly dangerous. Humans may become vulnerable should a digital virus infect the biochip on the brain. Therefore, biocybersecurity needs to be the top priority of the future. A strong defensive mechanism needs to be built, assisted with AI, to defend against any digital attack. Nobody wants to see an army of zombies with high-tech abilities controlled by a single individual or organization. Imagine all cyber threats, from botnets to ransomware and Trojan horses. All of these can target humans should proper security be absent. Finally, now that you are in the future, you are equipped with advanced prosthetic limbs. In fact, people are now fully modular. On one hand, humans are less exposed to biological diseases and infections. But on the other hand, bionics may pose high levels of risk. Besides the new benchmark of power that will be introduced with weaponized bionics, integrating electromechanical technology to the human body makes the body hackable as well. Hence, and going back to the present, it's a must to start having serious discussions about the technologies that will constitute the future of human evolution so that appropriate measures and defensive mechanisms can be forged to avoid the extinction of the human race. You are listening to episode 5 of the Road to Transhumanism podcast, during which I gave an overview about the past, 
the present and the possible future of humans' internal defensive mechanisms. If you enjoyed this solo episode, let me know via Twitter or LinkedIn. And make sure to subscribe to this show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and now on Angami as well. Thank you for tuning in. I'll talk to you in the next one. Stay safe.